This is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he, has, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by faith you have been saved, so by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Over to Tim. We're going to spend some time today in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. Before we delve into the passage, I want to give a little bit of context to this um, to this letter, so we know exactly who Paul was writing to and why he was writing. So Ephesus was a port city on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. It had an estimated population of around 250,000 people, which by today's standard is pretty small, Belfast just having over or just under 350,000. But in the first century, this made it one of the largest cities in the world, and also one of the most powerful. Not only that, but Ephesus quickly became one of the largest communities of Christian believers in the whole Roman Empire. Paul would have been very familiar with this city and this church, having spent three years living there during his missionary journeys. It's well documented that Paul visited the city of Ephesus around 52 AD during his third missionary journey. And then, Ten years later, while being imprisoned in Rome, he would write this letter to the church. Now, generally speaking, when you read Paul's letters, it's easy enough to understand why he is writing to the church. One common feature that you'll find in a lot of his letters is that he begins the letter with a sort of rebuke or a highlight of their wrongdoing or their mistakes and why that has led him to write to that church. For example, we know that Paul wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth because of divisions among the church. He explains this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. We know that, we know that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia because they have been led astray by false teaching. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But if you read the letter to the Ephesians, you'll see that there isn't necessarily so much of a rebuke. There isn't necessarily a beginning of conviction. So why is Paul writing this church? Why is Paul writing this letter to the church in Ephesus? What has led him to write this letter? 
Well, very quickly, let's look at chapter 1 to get an idea of what's caused Paul to reach out to this church he knew so well. Um, And it'll help us understand a little bit more about this passage that we're reading this morning. So chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, the verses immediately before today's passage say this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus because word has spread of their love of the Lord and also their their love for one each other. And he's so thankful to God for his goodness towards them. And what he then wants for them through his writing to them is that God would grant them wisdom, understanding, and enlightenment of the hope that they had been brought into when Jesus Christ died for them on the cross and rose again to be seated at God's right hand above all rule and authority and power. Essentially, Paul is first and foremost commending the Ephesian church for their faith but is writing them to remind them of the essential, fundamental, core truths of their faith. The message that Paul consistently comes back to in this letter is that God the Father has united all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. Chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verses 7 to 10 of the same chapter say, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Time and time again throughout this letter, Paul emphasizes the fact that God has united all things together in Christ, who reigns as King and Lord over all. And this message continues in today's passage as well. So chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in chapter 1, we have Paul singing God's praises for his divine, sovereign love in which he chose us before the foundation of the world, predestining us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace, and has lavished us, his creation, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And now, Paul's attention shifts from the eternal workings of the heavenly realm down to us, down to God's creation and the grand narrative of God's kingdom and our part to play in all of it. And he says, and you, Ephesians, 
were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of your flesh as children of wrath. He's straight to the point, as always. So the Ephesian church was dead? Very particular use of words on Paul's part to describe the state in which they once existed. In the original Greek that this was written in, Paul uses the word necros, which can be translated as simply without life. This phrase is used throughout the New Testament to describe death physically, morally, and spiritually. Paul is claiming that these Ephesians were, and note the phrasing, were at a previous stage, void of all life, dead in their trespasses and sin. This, of course, is spiritually speaking, in their relationship with their creator. Now, the choice of words is very careful here, and it's important that we understand the significance of what we read. Paul isn't saying that they were dying in their trespasses and sin. He doesn't say that they were sickly in their trespasses and sin. No, they were dead without any life. Such words speak of an irreversible nature, a very final state, helpless, hopeless. The trespasses and sin in which the church in Ephesus once walked were significant enough that they were declared dead. Now, these words that Paul uses, they seem so extreme, almost hyperbolic. To describe the readers as dead, as children of wrath. So my first thought is, when I read this, did Paul encounter certain activities or attitudes when he traveled to Ephesus that would merit him describing their nature before God as dead in their sin? Well, no, because not only does Paul elaborate in verse 3 when he says, among whom we all once lived, but also concludes with, like the rest of mankind. What Paul is describing here is the basic nature of all humanity in relationship to God. Dead, without life. If we're to take this passage, and frankly all of Scripture seriously, it must be concluded that beyond any and all doubt, that there is no particular sin or trespass that we must commit before we are declared dead or without life. Because Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He then goes on to say that sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Bex and I, uh, we run our church's um, evangelistic course together called the Life Course. Over four weeks, we explore the fundamentals of the gospel and allow room for any questions that our guests might have at the end. During one of these weeks, we talk about sin and humanity's relationship to God. And our pastor, he uses what I think is a very effective analogy. He puts up on the screen an image of a ladder. This ladder from top to bottom, it represents the spectrum of good and evil. God, of course, being at the very top as the ultimate good, the perfect good. At the bottom, we have the usual examples. We have... Hitler, Putin, murders, rapists, etc., the worst of the worst. And then we, have, we, we ask the guests to have a think. Whereabouts do you think you'd lie on that scale of good and evil? 
almost all of those who come tell themselves, well, they're probably around the 40 or 45 percent mark. You know, they're not too good because they don't want to be full of themselves. They're not Mother Teresa. But they're also not the worst of the worst. They're pretty good people, all things considered. And then our pastor moves to the next slide and it reveals at the bottom, right alongside the worst people in humanity is you and I, the ultimate bad. It's a bit extreme, don't you think? But you see that when God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, he gave him his law and his commandments so that Israel could be in relationship with him. God revealed himself in his righteousness because God cannot be in relationship with evil and sin. God is the ultimate good and cannot allow sin to go unpunished, so he gave the law. But as Paul says in the book of Romans once again, that the law came in to increase the trespass. God gave his law to reveal to his people the extent of their lawlessness. We, by nature, are born into sin. We are without life, and you cannot revive that which is already dead. But not only that, but we who are dead are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The truth is quite clear. If Christ does not live in you, then you are a slave by nature to evil. Throughout the letter to the Ephesians and throughout all of Paul's letters, you see that he is very real about the fact that there is a realm above our own, a realm that is home to spiritual beings, powers, dominions, spiritual beings that are at work in the world around us. We see that throughout the Gospels that Christ himself speaks with demons and evil spirits, with Satan himself. Toward the end of this letter in chapter 5, Paul gives his closing statements and implores the church in Ephesus to, chapter 5, verse 13, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need only step back and look at the world around us today. And we know, Christian or not, we know that there is evil at work in this world. But what does this evil look like? Is it the, the horned devil with a fiery red tail? Is it the shadows in the corner of your room as you can't sleep at night? Is it this Hollywood exorcist horror movie evil? Well, no, at least not most of the time at least not according to today's passage. Today's passage says that the Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The great work of evil in this world is not the spooky shadows, it's not the jump scares, it's the severing of our relationship with God. It is the enslavement of all humanity, deceiving and corrupting them by persuading them that they are the God over their own lives and are free to live according to the desires of their body and mind. And in doing so, this leads them down the course of this world that leads only 
to death. This is how Satan has worked from the very beginning of time. We see this in the book of Genesis. In the garden, he asks Eve. One of the very first things he does is he asks Eve, did God really say that you cannot eat off the tree? It's in doubt, in deception, in temptation, the works of evil in the heart of mankind. The great and horrifying irony of the world that we live in today is that society will tell you Don't let God tell you who you can and cannot be. Be free to be whoever you want to be and live by your own rules. Be true to yourself. Very cunning, very clever. All of humanity has been persuaded to set themselves free from the truth, from the rules and regulations of God and be free in and of themselves. When in the truth of the matter is that in doing so, they are enslaving themselves to the universe or enslaving themselves, we are enslaving ourselves to death because we are rejecting in entirety the God of the universe who created us to be in perfect relationship with him and in doing so have become children of wrath, God's wrath, God's wrath upon evil. It seems so bleak, doesn't it? God created us in love to live according to his righteous and perfect law that gives life and light to all. And in our evil nature, we spat in his face and we declared ourselves our own God, condemning ourselves to eternal judgment. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The two greatest words ever written in the whole of history, but God, but God being rich, being full of mercy. Because of what? Because of our goodness? Because of our efforts? because of our church attendance, because of our charity, because of our patience? No, because of his great love. Even when we were dead, without life, hopeless, rightfully condemned to eternal judgment, he made us alive together in Christ. How? By being nailed through his hands and feet to a cross of wood upon which he himself willingly took our evil thoughts, words, and deeds and became the true child of wrath. In dying upon the cross, our sin, our evil, our debt to God was paid in full. Forgiven. But not only that, but as we celebrated very recently, Christ, being dead without life, was raised by God the Father to life so that we too would be raised. Not only raised, but verses 6 and 7, raised up with him 
to be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. Not simply saved from sickness and health, not saved from mediocrity and thriving, not saved just from poverty and riches, but saved from life, from, sorry, from death into life and life to the full. Christ himself makes his purpose very clear when he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not only that, but he also says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God has united all things in Christ so that we may be given life and life to the full. With such truth in mind, there's three things that I want to ask this morning. Firstly, if you're a Christian here this morning, this passage makes it very clear. You have been raised from death to life in Christ. You are in Christ, and by his Holy Spirit, Christ is in you. So let me ask you this. Does Christ live in you? Is your life in its entirety an act of worship and thanksgiving to the God who saved you from your sin? Be honest with yourself. Do those who come across you on a daily basis, do they look at you and know that Christ lives in you, that he has made his home in you? Do you find your nourishment, your fulfillment, your hope in Christ? Is the word of God the very lifeblood that courses through your veins? Is prayer the very air that you breathe in which you find all strength to live each day? If you might have forgotten that you must be totally and completely reliant upon God to make it through every single day, and perhaps you might have also forgotten how reliant upon God you were for your salvation in the first place. God loves you according to the riches of his grace. So what hope do you have in trying to please him with your own righteousness? You don't have any. God, enough with getting, on, enough with getting by on your own good works because you have none. We are made righteous in Christ, but by faith. We may not have good works, but we have prayer. We have God's word, lifeblood and air in our lungs. Do you find your hope in the cornerstone that is Christ? Or are you clinging on to that which is already dead? Are you clinging on to hope that your righteousness is found in your good works, in your patience, in your good deeds? Second question I have is this. I can say with complete certainty that every single one of us in the room here this morning, we know of someone, a friend, a co-worker, a family member, a stranger on the street, and they do not know Christ. Think of that person for a second. They are dead in their trespasses and sin. 
And when Christ returns, we're assured that they will be judged as such. Pray for these people. If you love them, then you will ensure that they know of the good news of Jesus Christ. Pray for them day and night. Pray that God will save them from their sin. And then tell them the truth. This life is but a blink of an eye in the light of eternity. And tell me this, is one uncomfortable moment in which you tell someone about Jesus not worth it when you consider the entirety of eternity that lies ahead? An eternity either in glory with Christ, in which all tears will be wiped away, all wrongs will be made right, or an eternity of God's wrath. It isn't too late, but it will be. My final question is this. If you're here this morning and perhaps you do not know Christ as your Savior, I must ask you, why wait? In Christ is found all hope, all joy, all peace, all goodness. And we read here that Christ's, that God's will is that we, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All you have to do is believe in him. Believe that he died for you so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And if you welcome him into your life, he will make you a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I think Paul sums up everything that has been said this morning far better than I ever could. We see in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, He says this, For this reason, that is all things being united in Christ, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we might ask or think, according to the power at the work at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are good, you are true, you are righteous. We thank you that even though we are dead in our trespasses and sin, even while we were dead, Christ saved us from our sin. You sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in our place to pay the price that we owed, that we may be made righteous, we may be made a new creation in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that the words that were spoken this morning may be at work in our hearts. I pray that you would shape us according to your righteousness into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he may be given all the glory, all the power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.